right, well, good evening. It is awesome to be with y'all tonight, and I look forward to sharing together and the word that the Lord has, has given. So if you would turn with me, if you're in the church's Bible, we will be on page 1056 in Amos chapter 1. So last time we, we discussed a lot of details to include people, time frames, history, and some things that are, that are kind of a lot to, to grasp, but really important um, as, we, as we look at what is happening in the time of Amos and really why Amos was sent to give the words that he was sent to give. So I'd like to, to hit a few of the high points that, that we studied last time. Uh, you remember that by the time of Amos, uh, 1760 to 1750, that Israel and Judah had split into two separate kingdoms and separate nations, Israel to the north and Judah to the south. So if it helps, you might think of Oklahoma to the north and Texas to the south. Judah retained Jerusalem as their capital which was very significant. So Israel had to establish a new capital, which was in Samaria. And Israel also had to establish new sanctuaries in cities Bethel and Dan in order to prevent Israelites from going into Jerusalem to make sacrifices at the temple. So Amos' ministry is during the reign of two kings, Jeroboam II, who was the king of Israel, and Uzziah, who was the king of Judah. Amos was from the southern kingdom of Judah, preaching to the northern kingdom of Israel. So Amos preached and prophesied in one location, Bethel, which was one of the two sanctuaries that had been established in Israel. Um... It was the royal sanctuary where Israel's king would worship and where the high priest would minister. So you'll remember that we don't have a lot of biographical details about Amos. Uh, he was a simple person. He was a sheep herder. He was a sycamore, a sycamore uh, fig tree pruner. And he was from a small town called Tekoa, which is just south of Jerusalem. He was not a professional prophet like Samuel or Eli or Elijah or Elisha. God simply called him from herding sheep and said, go prophesy to my people Israel. So in a nutshell at this time, Israel had tremendous pride as a nation and as a people. And they assumed that being God's people meant he would not bring judgment on them. They judged others and they believed themselves exempt from captivity or any real punishment from sin. 
So tonight, we're going to look at the first of one of the judgments on the nations. So if you've read in chapter 1 or chapter 2, you'll know that there are many judgments that, that, that go to many different nations and that they follow a similar pattern. So each of these is a prophecy and a judgment from the Lord. Damascus is just to the north of Israel. Gaza is to the southwest of Israel. Tyre is to the northwest of Israel. Edom to the far south of Israel. Ammon to the near east border of Israel. Moab to the southeast corner of Israel. And Judah, their sister nation, just to the south. So as God's people in Israel were hearing these words, they weren't hearing about far distant lands that they didn't know of. They weren't watching the news about cases that had nothing to do with them. They were hearing judgment about people very near and with a relationship to them. In a similar fashion that we studied in Revelation where we read different letters addressed to different churches, I believe that these prophecies and judgments that are given to each of these different nations have relevance for us. So we'll study them in that way um, to see what the Lord is showing us. So tonight we're going to look at Damascus, which was and is the capital city in Syria, just north of Israel. So let's read together. Uh, we'll read in Amos chapter 1, just these few verses in 3, 4, and 5. Amos says, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because they have threshed Gilead with implements of iron. But I will send a fire into the house of Hazazel, which shall devour the palaces of Ben-Hadad. I will also break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitant from the valley of Avon and the one who holds the scepter of Beth-Eden. The people of Syria shall go captive to Ker, says the Lord. So a few, a few succinct verses, and this is a judgment upon the city of Damascus and the entire people of Syria. So there's a few things that we'll talk about tonight that are, are going to be important for us to grab a hold of because each of the judgments that we'll study and the prophecies that we'll read about will all follow a similar pattern. So there is a standard formula and structure that Amos uses for each of these cities. Now it may be difficult for us to see it, but if, if you look at these few verses, you'll notice that they look different from perhaps some of the other books that we might read from, like Kings and Chronicles. They look like stanzas or lines of a poem. And that's because Amos is using poetry as the way he's delivering these messages. Which means that the things he's saying are following a pattern that has great depth. Each of these judgments include five components. First is that they all begin with, thus says the Lord. Second, they all say the same thing. For three transgressions, for four, I will not turn away its punishment. Third, because. Fourth, the Lord says, but I will send fire. 
and 5, thus says the Lord. Now Amos uses this pattern for every nation that he addresses. And this in and of itself is very significant for us to hear. For I think we often think that God judges one different than another. That God withholds rain on one and judges another sharply. That maybe we, like Israel, are those who will not be judged according to God's own standards, but we might be spared for some reason. This pattern in each judgment has a repetition and a rhythm that's kind of like a a musical crescendo. You can imagine that as Amos would give these words and judgment upon judgment, it would rise maybe like a speech by Martin Luther King. That each judgment read would grow when it's significant because God is speaking and his word means business. So the first thing here in in this passage we notice, it says, thus says the Lord. You You may have this in your mind. This may be familiar. You may have seen it in many prophetic works before. It's known as the messenger formula. It reminds the reader and the hearer that Amos speaks not for himself, but for the God who sent him as a messenger to his people. So Amos' authority is not his own, so his words are to be measured for their faithfulness to God's will. The first person pronouns, like I, that are used again and again and again, are not the words of Amos, but the words of God who sent him. And these words, if you look on your next page, or if you look down to verse 5, They bookend this word as well. For Amos closes, says the Lord. This is so important because I think we often read in Scripture or we hear things that we know are inspired of God and we we kind of pick and choose what we want to adhere to, what we want to ooh and ah and moan over, what we want to lean into and really allow to change us and others we leave out. But when the Lord is speaking, his word is final, his word is full, it is complete, and it is for us to press into. The next thing that that Amos says is for three transgressions of Damascus and for four. So for three transgressions and for four will be used for every judgment that is given against the nations. And this is a Hebrew poetic device called numeric parallelism. So we have three and we have four. Three represents a full number. It represents all. You think of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as the fathers of God's people. You think of the Father and the Son and the Spirit as the fullness of God. This three here represents the fullness of transgression. Four is greater than three. So it expresses a full measure of transgressions and then some. Therefore, the sins of Damascus were innumerable. It wasn't just that they had done three things or four things or seven things, but that they had reached the fullness and then some of their transgressions against God. 
This word for transgression is unique. There are, are six different words in the Old Testament in the Hebrew to describe what we would often read as sin. There's one that means being broken or blemished, like a lamb that has a spot. There's one that literally means missing a mark, like an arrow missing its target. There's another that means crooked instead of straight. There's another word for sin that means a trespass. And another that means to swerve or wander. And these are all pictures of what sin indeed is, but this one is far greater. The word here is peshaw, and it, it comes from a verb that means to revolt. So its meaning is grave. To be a transgression is to be in rebellion. Next in this same line, you might read, I will not turn away its punishment. Now your Bible punishment or judgment might be in italics. And this means that the word is not present in the Hebrew. But by context and sentence structure, it's implied. So I'll read a few translations to you to help, to help give some imagery. The New Living, New Living Translation says, I will not let them go unpunished. The NIV says, I will not relent. The English Standard Version says, I will not revoke the punishment. The King James says, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. And our translation says, I will not turn away its punishment. Not one of these leave out the idea of punishment because it is so strongly implied by the rest of the language. The word that's used here in this sentence that says turn away, most translations say, is actually the same that we use for repentance in Hebrew. It is the word shub that we say turn away from or turn back or return. So repentance has this idea of stopping what we are doing and going a different way. Same word that is used here to say that God will not turn back his punishment. All these translations of, these, of this verse implies that the natural order to sin is punishment. Sin doesn't just separate us from God, it makes us enemies. So we have here in, in our passage, Damascus. For three transgressions of Damascus and for four. These are not general accusations that Amos gives. He names the crimes and he announces the punishments. So terrible things are done by all of the nations that we'll study about over the next few weeks. But this one is specifically against Israel. Damascus is charged with torture and cruelty to victims from Gilead. Because they have threshed Gilead with implements of iron. There was a lot going on here when this took place, but Israelites were treated far worse than regular prisoners of war. They were tortured and treated incredibly cruelly. So Amos announces that God will consume the capital of Damascus with fire, 
the doom of their ruler, and the people will go captive to Kerr. So that seems pretty straightforward, and we could simply read this and think, wow, they had done some terrible things in Damascus and the nation of Syria, and all of these things are warranted, but that would be a very simple understanding of some things that took place over tens of years and over a hundred years. So there's a fair amount that are surrounding these two people that we read about in verse 4, Hazazel and Ben-Hadad. So we're going to look over several scriptures to kind of understand all of the places that have an account here. So we're going to be primarily in the book of 1 Kings and 2 Kings. So if you'd start in 1 Kings chapter 18. Now we're going to go through several scriptures and we're going to see some commonality among who is involved in in all of these stories. The first place we'll read is in chapter 18. We'll read uh, verses 17 through 21. And you remember that the prophet Elijah um, was called to prophesy during some very difficult times. There was a king named Ahab who was a man of great evil who married a woman named Jezebel, who brought in from her other country many false gods, Asherah poles, um, worshiping Baal, and many, many evil places. And so the country had not known the great evil um, like they did during this time. We'll begin reading in verse 17. It says, Then it happened when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said to him, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, and 450 prophets of Baal, and 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at the table of Jezebel. Verse 20, and Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. Now we'll not read this whole chapter, but you know the story. All of these prophets come together. The Lord gives Elijah an understanding of a test that they will see whose gods reign supreme. And all of these prophets of Baals and Asherah come together and they simply cannot do what our God can do. Our God rains down from heaven and he absorbs this wood that had been soaked again and again with water and the sacrifice and the altar are consumed. Now this is important for two reasons for us to see. Um, Well, three, I guess. The first is that Yahweh is glorified. There is serious idolatry in Israel. 450 of one and 400 of another that are false prophets of false gods. That is serious idolatry. And second, Elijah is on point following God's directions. 
And this is very important because the things that we read about in a moment, it's important to see that Elijah is not some prophet, some person of God going their own way, doing their own thing, thinking on their own, and using the Lord's name in vain. This is a man who has stood toe-to-toe with the enemy and knows who he serves, and he serves him alone. Let's turn to the next chapter, chapter 19. We'll begin reading in verse 15. We're talking about Elijah. It says in verse 15, Then the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, anoint Hazazel as king over Syria. And you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And Elijah, the son of Shaphat, of Abel, Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazazel, Jehu will kill. And whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. So Elijah is called by God shortly after the showdown with all of the false prophets. He's called to anoint three specific people. First, Hazazel as king over Syria. Now, Elijah is not a prophet in Syria. He is a prophet in Israel, yet he is called to anoint a king of another nation. Number two, he is called to anoint Jehu as king over Israel. And third, he is called to anoint Elisha as the prophet to replace himself. The reason given to destroy those committed to Baal in order to spare those who have not bowed down to him. One way or another, God would destroy Ahab and his dynasty who were filled with evil and idolatry. Let's read that again from verse 17. It says, It shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazazel, Jehu will kill. And whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Now, some could read this out of context and and go off quite a tirade about how could a good God kill people. This is how serious God is about idolatry and evil and sin. That a good God would spare the innocent from the evil that would corrupt them. Next, let's turn to 2 Kings chapter 8. 2 Kings chapter 8. So we started with Elisha. And then we we have on the scene Hazazel and Jehu and Elisha. Now we're going to read next about Elisha, who has succeeded Elijah as one of the Lord's prophets. So we'll read in chapter 8, we'll read verses 17 through 15. Then Elisha went to Damascus, and Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, was sick. And it was told him, saying, The man of God has come here. And the king said to Hazazel, Take a present in your hand and go to meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord by him, saying, Shall I recover from this disease? So Hazazel went to meet him and took a present with him of every good thing of Damascus, 
40 camel loads, and he came and stood before him and said, Your son, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you, saying, Shall I recover from this disease? And Elisha said to him, Go, say to him, You shall certainly recover. However, the Lord has shown me that he will really die. Then he set his countenance in a stare until he was ashamed, and the man of God wept. And Hazazel said, Why is my Lord weeping? He answered, Because I know the evil that you will do to the children of Israel. Their strongholds you will set on fire, and their young men you will kill with the sword, and you will dash their children and rip, and open, rip open their women with children. So Hazazel said, But what is your servant, a dog, that he should do this gross thing? And Elijah answered, excuse me, Elisha answered, The Lord has shown me that you will become king over Syria. Then he departed from Elisha and came to his master and said to him, What did Elijah say to you? And he answered, He told me that you would surely recover. But it happened on the next day that he took a thick cloth and dipped it in water, spread it over his face so that he died, and Hazazel reigned in his place. So this is years later from Elisha being anointed after Jehu and after Hazazel. God provided an opportunity for Elisha to pray with this king, Ben-Hadad, king in Syria. He was sick and he sent his son, Hazazel, to meet with Elisha. Elisha saw spiritually that the man that he was looking at was evil and would eventually kill and do horrible things to God's people in Israel. Yet, he did nothing about this. He knew that the Lord was allowing this. So then Hazazel suffocated his father Ben-Hadad so that he could become king. Next, let's look at 2 Kings 9. We'll turn the page just one, and we'll read verses 1 through 7. It says, And Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Get yourself ready, take this flask of oil in your hand, and go to Ramoth-Gilead. Now when you arrive at that place, look there for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, and go in and make him rise up from among his associates and take him to an inner room. Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee and do not delay. So the young man, the servant of the prophet, went to remote Gilead. And when he arrived, there were the captains of an army sitting. And he said, I have a message for you, commander. Jehu said, For which one of us? And he said, For you, commander. Then he rose and went into the house, and he poured the oil on his head and said to him, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I have anointed you king over the people of the Lord over Israel. You shall strike down the house of Ahab your master, that I may avenge my excuse me, that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. So this goes on and on, but what we should see here is that in agreement with the command the Lord had given Elisha, Elisha now ordered that Jehu would become the king in Israel. Let's look at one more 
place. Just turn over to chapter 10, 2 Kings chapter 10. We'll read verses 32 and 33. It says, In those days the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel, and Hazazel conquered them all and the territory of Israel, from the Jordan eastward, all the land of Gilead, Gad, Reuben, Manasseh, from Aor, which is by the river Arnon, including Gilead and Bashan. Now the rest of the acts of Jehu, all that he did, all his might, are they all not written about in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehu rested with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria. Then Jehoahaz, his son, reigned in his place. And the period of Jehu reigned over Israel and Samaria was 28 years. So Jehu, um, Jehu dies. The Lord begins to, it says, cut off parts of Israel. One more scripture. Turn to chapter 13, and we'll read verses 1 through 7. In the 23rd year of Joash, the son of Azaziah, king of Judah, Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, became king over Israel and Samaria, and reigned 17 years. And you should know we're reading kind of a parallel account, so we're reading again about Jehu. Verse 2, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin and did not depart from them. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel and he delivered them into the hand of Hazazel, king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazazel, all their days. So Jehoahaz pleaded with the Lord and the Lord listened to him. For he saw the oppression of Israel, because the king of Syria oppressed them. Then the Lord gave Israel a deliverer, so that they escaped from under the hand of the Syrians, and the children of Israel dwelt in their tents as before. Nevertheless, they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, who had made Israel sin, but walked in them, and the wooden image also remained in Samaria. For he left of an army of Jehoahaz only fifty horsemen, Ten chariots, ten thousand foot soldiers, and the king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like the dust at threshing. Okay, now I know that we've just we've just read a lot of things. Um, what we have here is a very elaborate and long story that God has choreographed, start to finish and use various people to bring forth his purpose. All the victory of Hazazel was allowed by God. Hazazel was a great evil person. Remember, he is the one who suffocated his father to take the throne. Yet God had called Elisha to anoint this man, who would later destroy God's people. God established a king named Jehu many, many seasons before Jehu would take the throne. Jehu was born an evil person and continued in the Lord's evil ways. But the Lord used him because the Israelites would not turn from their sin. 
He used him to try and overturn some of the things that Ahab and Jezebel had done, and he did that for a time, and then he returned to those ways. More destruction would come through Hazazel and Ben-Hadad. The Lord even used Elisha, the prophet after Elijah, to take part in anointing Jehu, to take part in knowing the sin that Hazazel would commit. So let's look back at Amos for a minute. If you're in the church's Bible, it'll be on page 1056, Amos chapter 1. Let's read verses 3 and 4. It says, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because they have threshed Gilead with implements of iron. But I will send a fire into the house of Hazazel, which shall devour, excuse me, devour the palaces of Ben-Hadad. So over the course of 150 years, God orchestrates words and directions and establishes rulers who will be allowed to be used by him to bring judgment against Israel. All of the while, God is trying to rid Israel of their idolatry and their evil, which they refuse. I believe that when Amos's hearers heard this word, they weren't merely rejoicing that God's judgment was coming against Damascus for Gilead. They were weeping because they welcomed it. God punishes Israel for their evil. God also punishes Syria for their evil especially for their torture and cruelty of victims who were prisoners of war in Gilead. But we have to see that God's judgment is happening equally. The past few weeks my mind has been blown by the magnitude of these passages. Because I don't just see a few things happening in a simple story, a a few different characters over the course of a few months or the course of a few years, but I see many great and powerful nations, great and powerful rulers, large armies, insignificant people that are all being used as instruments of God's purpose. See, God's purpose isn't just what seems right to us. It's not just that what seems good overcomes evil. It's as Amos's words were, the fullness of God's will, which is to draw evil people out of their way and back to his. A few things that the Lord has shown me. One is that God does things on purpose. 
not just on purpose like we think, like not an accident. No, God does things on his good purpose. God is not playing checkers or parcheesi like us. He's not even playing chess. God is doing things according to his purpose. God doesn't distinguish between what he likes or what he doesn't like. He distinguishes between what is good and evil or according to his purpose or not. For the things that aren't according to his purpose... He is working with the things that are so that the things that aren't will be. Let me say that again. For the things that aren't according to his purpose, he is working with the things that are so that the things that are not will be. We know that scripture says, for all things are called according to the good. Help me remember this scripture. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Next is that God uses things to get our attention. Over this 150 year period, God was using incapable men, evil men, to get Israel's attention. God uses things for his purpose. Only God can do that. We can't try and do things according to God's purpose. God has to use us according to his purpose. The Lord showed me that when we rely on physical things for our understanding, we imagine what is going on in the world like a one-act play with one person. One person, one simple act. Instead, in the spiritual realm, it's a ten-act play with many characters. There are many evolutions and cycles to what the Lord is doing, and He is using all things to bring about His purpose. He is using Hazazel and Ben-Hadad and Jehu and Elisha and Elijah. God's ways are yes higher than our ways and that's because his ends are eternal. The story that we read about tonight is so happening now. God is using men and women that we would not put in power, that we would not use. He is using us if we would allow him to bring about his eternal purpose for salvation. Like those in the days of Elijah and Amos, there are many Hazazels and Jehus today. World leaders or supervisors, though they may not seem like the hands and feet of Jesus, they may be used as instruments of God. In Daniel chapter 2, we're told that he removes kings and raises up kings. In Romans 13, we're told that there is no authority except from God and that the authorities that, ex- that, that exist are appointed by God. Shouldn't our response in such a world be the same? 
like Elijah, like Proverbs 21 that we read about a few weeks ago, that the Lord would weigh our heart to do righteousness and justice. Oh, if Elisha, oh, if Elisha had not listened to the word of the Lord, what would have become of Israel? Maybe many would have been spared, but many would be damned. So this week, as I've been reading through this passage again and again, the Lord gave me a warning to a judgment that I hopefully do not receive. As I read through this place for three transgressions and for four again and again, I so easily wrote this out as the Lord inspired me. For three transgressions of Daniel and for four, I will not turn away his punishment because he continues in pride and control and returns to selfishness and has not kept my commandments. So I will send a fire into the house of Daniel which will devour all, says the Lord. I wonder what words the Lord would speak to us. What spiritual places that we've yet to be set free from? What spirits that we have been set free from and that we have returned to? What commandments that we've broken? I pray the Lord would speak to us and that we would listen. Amen.